Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. And this weekend, we're talking about interesting approaches to horror in video games. Because Rob, I know you're playing something, you were telling me just a little bit about it before the show. Something that actually approaches unreliability and other interesting uh, sorts of ways of parsing information in horror in games. And that sounds pretty rad. Yeah, I think overall I'm, I'm having a mixed reaction to this game, but it's got some really cool things going on it, and it's a uh, it's a game called Distrust, and I need to pull up the Steam information real quick because I forget who made it. Um, but basically, it's uh, sort of a real time uh, like party based survival game RPG. Mm. Uh, so you know, kind of ripping off the thing. Uh, kind of ripping off Ice Station Zebra, mostly <laughs> the thing. In fact, like explicitly on the store, it's like. Oh yeah, this is inspired by John Carpenter's The Thing. Um, and the developers cheer dealers. But the thing they're doing that's interesting is that so they're playing around with sort of madness mechanics and stress mechanics and stuff like that. So it's all very familiar, right? It's the same stuff you see in uh, Amnesia to an extent. Like your characters get too freaked out. Uh, their perceptions start to warp. The thing is their perceptions work in different ways uh, in this game. And the cool thing is that it can escalate to a point where like what you're seeing on your monitor is like not quite an accurate representation of reality. Uh, and, and that's an interesting dynamic. And I'm curious to see how far they push that. Like, so at one point, I have my two characters running around this Arctic base uh, that's like mysteriously and creepily abandoned. <laughs> and they're both sleep deprived. They're both getting increasingly hungry. Um, and they've sort of been split up for a while. And while they're working separately, I'm toggling between them. Um, they're getting different sort of status effects put onto them. And when I brought them together again, one of the characters just had, like, blurred vision and this constant, like, eerie singing uh, in there, in the track. But when you're playing from that perspective, there's just, like, this weird, tuneless humming and singing uh, in the background that was, you know, at first it was annoying, then it gets increasingly, like, kind of creepy and like, wow. oppressive. Yeah. And then I switched to the other character's point of view, and the other party member isn't there, but instead, like, a glowing monster is roving around this room and doing shit and twitching. And my party member who's seeing this hallucination is getting increasingly stressed by the presence of the other party member because from their perspective, it's, it's a terrifying monster. <laughs> and it kind of didn't work because obviously you can sort of toggle between them and like you as the player know exactly what the score is, you know, that's that's not a monster. It's just um, it's just the other party member. It's but I am buddy. curious if the game is going to go in a direction where you know maybe later in the game, if one of those characters is armed and a monster walks into the room, like will you be able to prevent your character from reacting and like trying to shoot your friend? One of the other status effects I saw was like bursts of violence didn't actually see that like manifest itself anywhere, but what the game seems to be pointing at and what they're explicitly selling 
is that you can only see the world as your characters see it. You can only perceive it as your characters perceive it. And because of the stress they're under, the game itself sort of becomes an unreliable narrator. And I think that is a really interesting concept uh, that I can't think of too many games that have played around with that. Yeah, that's actually really, really fascinating to me because it's... uh, There's something about horror media that, you know, depicts the physical experience of fear, but never can completely induce the physical experience of fear, I suppose. It's always that sort of, okay, you're watching something on a screen happen versus something's happening in your own body, right? And, of course, I don't want horror to actually... uh, somehow be capable of going inside my brain or my heart or whatever and and doing horrible things. But I've always been very interested in how games, especially because they're interactive, can actually sort of get at that that physical experience of fear as opposed to just sort of that that very third-person sort of removed experience of fear. And it sounds like status effects might be a a really interesting way of doing that and, and sort of attempting to get at what that's like in in this sort of situation where there's a whole bunch of people and a whole bunch of shit is going down. And maybe that sort of idea of like, you just can't predict things helps it uh, helps the horror along to some degree. Well, especially because like the thing they're trying to evoke with um, the thing is that that is a, that is a movie explicitly about like a group of people breaking down and no longer being able to trust each other. Yeah. Right. It's that classic horror motif of group people uh, steadily turn against one another because there's something, there's some presence with them that all makes it impossible for them to stay on the same page and continue trusting each other. And like the thing is kind of the, the peak of that. And I think that's something that games can uh, struggle to evoke. Like a lot of times, if that's to happen, a character who's gone truly well, well and truly off the rails becomes like an entirely like outside NPC character. You lose agency over them. Perfect example, um, you know, is what happens in Phantasmagoria with the husband, where like the main character's husband literally becomes one of like the villains and antagonists of the game because he goes in the full like shining direction. And he just stops being an ally in the sort of like haunted house fight for survival and becomes like, uh, you know, pretty monstrous uh, foe in, in some ways. But how do you do that while still maintaining the player's contr- like you know relationship with that character, right? How can you make it so that it's the player who feels like they're losing their mind? I think distrust is on to something. Um, but I think at least in this demo, it's hesitating to take control away from you in the ways to, that could really make that work. Like, you've got a monster standing exactly where the other character is standing. Like, <laughs> as the player, you know what's happening. But I'm really curious, like, in the full game, is somebody just going to pull out a gun and try to shoot their buddy? Um, <laughs> yeah. And it also, the where this is interacting with the rest of the game is, uh, you know, there's three stats. It's uh, warmth, because it's the Arctic, so you got to stay warm. Uh, it's stamina, which basically means sleep. And uh, uh, satiety, uh, satiety. Uh, it's, oh, yes. it's, you know, whether Ooh. you're well-fed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and all of those, like, letting any of those go wrong can, can cause some issues. But, like, sleep deprivation is the big one uh, that starts to, like, 
cause your characters to get really wonky. So it does mean that you have like these desperate like people wandering through an increasingly distorted world, uh, just trying to find a bed uh, where they can pass out. Um, and that's and that's a pretty you know it, it's kind of a nifty thing. Now, the issue with a lot of survival games is um, this is the other thing that, like where distrust starts to fall apart for me. Like in earlier builds of the Long Dark, and I think it's gotten better about this, but like you can't go five steps without like being drastically diminished in terms of those resources, and so yeah. like, the game like it starts to become less and less tense and become more and more of a nuisance as it's just like, you need to eat, you need to sleep. And it's like, well, okay, but now like I literally can't have five minutes to like explore the space and like see what's cool here. It's like literally just, no, you need to get exactly the next like pot of food. And if you don't do that, it's all going to go wrong. Uh, yeah. That ain't the thing. There, there's such a weird and fine and difficult line between frustrating the player and, scaring the shit out of them right and that feels like it's the core tension of any really good horror game this is the thing with with alien isolation you know of course i guess that's almost become like the next take a drink i guess for for our podcast but whatever it's fine <laughs> um but that game frustrated the hell out of a lot of people whereas i was super in it to win it and i could see why it would be very frustrating and people would get sick of it and just give up on it and be like fuck this we all have different tolerances for that stuff, right? We all have different tolerances as players for what actually scares us and what actually engages us and what is what is just like, oh, come on, man. This sucks. I'm bored or I'm frustrated or I've had enough of this shit and I'm going to turn this off now. I, I don't know if that's... Uh, if, if distrust is hitting you in those places yet, though. Yeah, it's... um, It's, it's on the border of that, like, kind of screw this uh, <laughs> point. Cause like, because the problem there, there, there's a couple problems. One is that it does not seem to be all that scary. Like okay. the effect, your characters are freaking out, but then it appears like your enemies are these like glowing orbs that sort of chase you around, and, like make people really cold. And it's like, okay, great. So your monster design is kind of like a particle effect uh, that's, <laughs> that's running around the world. That's not, that's not really that, cool or evocative it's the prey problem where it's like yeah oh it's, you know it's a it's a creepy setup it's a it's a spooky world and then you see what the, the the monster is and it's kind of a oh is that it kind of reaction like surely there's something more immediately threatening and uh impressive than than this little like glowing basketball that chases your character around but then the other part is, I, I think distrust is definitely on that. What is driving the horror mechanics is not horror. It's just things like sleep deprivation and hunger. So it's a survival game, but then it's just saying, well, it's getting spooky now because like you, you've gone five minutes without like jamming a cup of instant noodles uh, <laughs> down someone's gullet. And that's yeah. not, that's like, the effects are those of horror, but like what the game is doing, the, the actual procedure of it is just look, feed these assholes. Just just put food in their bellies, and maybe they'll stop freaking out for five minutes so they can like open a goddamn lock. <laughs> feed your shitty children. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, when it when it comes to like it's just babysitting instead of actually like, oh man, I'm really in this. I'm really role playing as these people. It sounds like that's falling on the wrong side of the frustration, frustration and fear divide, I suppose. I yeah. wonder. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, just that I, and I think that's where like the survival element introduces that, right? Like I think a lot of survival mechanics, especially when they're sort of like not in a course like a game where survival is the only thing, but a lot of those mechanics are designed, like, end up being really frustrating. And yeah. I think this is where this game is in danger of ending up. Yeah. But you were going to say. Well, I was just going to say, I, I wonder if this game would have been so much more effective if you never saw, <laughs> if you never saw the glowing orb monsters and you always just heard horrible things. I, I'm coming around on certain aspects of, of horror in the, in the, in the uh, you know, the old school, see a little bit, but never see too much of it. Never see too much of the monster, because, of course, the monster in your mind is always much scarier than the monster right. that you actually see. And, uh, you know, going back and watching uh, my beloved alien uh, movies again, and the more the alien gets kind of overexposed, the less scary it actually is, and the more it's just horror rather than terror and that kind mm -hmm. of thing. The more I think, hey, man... What if the what if the the fucked up aliens are just literally invisible, just just completely invisible? Unless unless you are making the most horrifying abomination, all other thing, ever. I mean that's still pretty freaky because that's really body horror as weird fucked up claymation as you know whatever. If you're not making that, make it invisible because I think we're we're kind of at a weird point visually speaking with horror where it has to. It's hard to shock at this point, so go for the the subtle approach. That's that's usually the winning move. Yeah, I mean, like, I think that's generally the approach with uh, you know, like the paranormal activity movies, where it's just people yeah. reacting to like a spooky feeling. Yeah. Um, and that that approach definitely works on on, on some level. Uh, the the uh, the another interesting approach of like sort of an invisible enemy is uh, you know, sort of what you see and it follows. Yes. Where it's invisible to everyone but the person being hunted. <laughs> yes. uh, and then what's, what the person who's being hunted sees is just a really familiar but somehow just off type figure. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's creepy old ladies. It's, you know, it's, yeah. it's uh, spooky homeless. And I, there's a really good critique I wrote of it. Uh, I, I, I read of it, which is that... Um, it follows as like this really effective example of like rust belt, like post-industrial horror mm. where the people, the, the figures that the, that represent the monster in this world are all kind of like forgotten people in modern society. Oh, sure. Right. So it's like the downtrodden, it's the unemployed, it is the marginalized, it is the homeless, the people who are invisible to us in our daily lives uh, become visible to the person who's being stalked by this monster. And that's the form it takes. Oh, I which like is, that. It's really cool. Because <laughs> um, it is, like, monster, like, effective monster design, damn, it is really, really tough. Like, how, especially, especially in a game, I think, because, like, a movie, so Alien can pull this trick because, I'm talking about the movie now. Yes. Alien can pull this trick because it's a two-hour movie. Maybe a little more. Uh, but ultimately, it can play that shell game with you for two hours. And you don't really ever get a good look at the alien until, like, basically the end of the movie. 
Yeah. Uh, the cat gets the best look of anyone. <laughs> Jonesy. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but as far as um, like making an entire game out of that, you gotta see the whole. You gotta see the whole alien before then, and so then it's gonna be like. I think this is where like isolation starts to get uh, go a little bit wrong, is that you spend a lot of time dealing with that alien, and it becomes like yes, it's intensive, it's grueling. After a point, though, it can also just start to piss you off, and the alien becomes like a real nuisance past. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I'll concede that. Even though I love that game, it, especially the very end, the last couple of hours got really cheap and like just frustrating, and. uh that's a dangerous, dangerous place to be uh, with your game, for sure. And it's... God, it's so hard. I, I genuinely love horror, and I would love to make some kind of little horror game at some point in my life. But I, I, it scares me more than making any other type of thing, because it, it seems like it needs to be kind of perfect in some ways. <laughs> or at least perfectly balanced along that frustration and fear sort of line. And that... God, that's hard to do. And well, so few games actually really it, do it, you know? It needs to be incomprehensible on some yes. level. Like, yes. Like, or at least not until, like, or at least you don't see what it is until the end. Like, it needs to be, like, revealed piecemeal and then an outline and, like, you know, a perfect example of something that starts out really, really terrifying and then I think kind of becomes really disappointing in actuality. Do you remember the fucking smoke monster in Lost? <laughs> like I actually never watched Lost. Uh, I'll admit it right now. That's, you know, probably a wise move. I know uh, what it is. I know, like, I know what the smoke monster is. Yeah, but yeah, but yeah, yeah. So, so the first episodes where it first appears, like, literally, is just this feeling of something massive and dangerous, and like almost like a like and almost like a antediluvian, like moving yeah. through the forest. Yeah, and then people have like. It, it pursues people, people have encounters with it. And each encounter you still have no idea what the hell they are encountering. Like what you like it's just in one encounter you maybe get a glimpse of something happening. In another encounter you just hear a new sound effect that you haven't like really heard. Like there's this moment where uh, you know you you realize that there's an odd mechanical like clanking noise that associate that's associated with the monster, which sort of calls into question like what wait, like, thought this thing was organic. What the hell is it? Um, And so it's this really, like, effective adversary foe foil. And then, like, a lot of the problems with these things, there's actually no great reveal that's going to be satisfying for that, right? Like, you created a bunch of, like, paradoxical and contradictory things about this creature uh, that's causing all these problems, but then, then the problem becomes, then you have to actually have to reveal the damn thing. And that's rarely that satisfying. Uh, because then it's like, well, here's, here's how we explain it. And, I mean, well, I mean, this is, this is the point, I guess, of all the modern alien movies, right? Is like, stop making us explain things to you. Uh, yeah. that's, that's, that's sort of Ridley Scott's new direction with the alien series. <laughs> it really is. Although, we may have even mentioned this, but, but there is that really interesting theory that the new, you know, Prometheus and Covenant and, like, the sort of new alien movies are much more about, like, an 80-year-old director ruminating on creation uh, than they are about Alien. But I also... <laughs> I'm also going to have fun with that sort of stuff anyway. But yes, 
you're absolutely right. Like it, it, whenever you take the mystery away from something, whenever you explain it, you're taking so much of the power away from a horrific thing. One of the reasons like the Babadook is such a great and effective horror movie is that I don't, I don't fucking know. Like it's obviously a metaphor for, uh, for grief for sure. But the actual like supernatural elements of it, like, no, nobody knows where that fucking book came from. I don't know where the book came from. Do you know where the book came from? Nope. It just showed up. It is just there. And that's it. And you got to deal with it. And that that is so much more effective than being, well, actually, let's make 10 sequels. And so The Babadook was written by a guy named Alan Duck. And you know, he, <laughs> he wrote this. And actually, he had, he had some issues himself. He had a weird relationship with his grandpa. You know, like a whole fucking thing that that completely deflates all of the the sort of weird, psychic, terrifying, mysterious power of of things we don't understand and never will. Um, so yeah. <laughs> Alan Duke, friends. Let's let's make sure that never happens. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so and, and I think a lot of so looking at a game like Distrust and to a degree a game like Prey, um it kind of feels like we're sort of hitting a point where people are realizing how difficult that task is to create an effective monster and are kind of just punting. Yeah. But that doesn't work either. Cause then maybe like, then you're right. Like then you should probably not show the monster or at least not show <laughs> it much. Like prey doesn't have an aesthetic for its enemies. Right. It really, like they're all just like oily black pools. And that doesn't, like, at first it's effective, but, like, increasingly it's just not. Like, you know, I I murdered the nightmare the other night. And it was yeah. just, like, it wasn't even a fight. I was just like, God, I'm sick of this thing. And, like, with a gun to my head, I couldn't really tell you what it looks like. It's just a big, like, blob. And you yeah. shoot the blob until it goes away. <laughs> Especially when you can basically get it stuck somewhere. Yeah, oh that's basically God. what I You can I abuse did. the hell out of, like, it's way too stuck big. stuck in a door. <laughs> and it's like, well, there you go, nightmare. <laughs> yeah, I got it uh, I got it trapped in an atrium. Oh, and nice. I was just like, well, I'm up here, and you can't do shit. So <laughs> I'm just going to stand up here on this railing and just, like, blast you. See you later, asshole. <laughs> yeah. So... Yeah, if you can see a monster, you need it to be, you need it to have some sort of presence. I think System Shock 2 worked, because System Shock 2, like, yes, there was, a, there was an ultimate monster, there was an ultimate enemy you saw. But the thing in System Shock 2 that really sticks with me is um, all the mutilated and broken and repurposed humans uh, that yeah. surround you, right? It's the zombies who are, like, begging you to like help them or like begging you to run away as they're attacking you right like there's there's someone in there screaming at you to leave and get out of there and you can't help them they're they're out of control so you just have to like you know kill the shit out of them yeah. uh you have the the thing that will like haunt me to my dying freaking day <laughs> is the um the cyborg nurses oh do you remember these things? Vaguely. I, I also have never played the whole thing. I, I did the whole... I, I cheated and watched so, the Let's Play of it, and that's how I know. Yeah, these are the things that... Shock too. These are the yeah. things that pop up on a, the hydroponics deck, 
And they're sort of like the gardeners and caretakers for like the amylid eggs. Yeah. And they're all like from the nursing staff that have been like forcibly grafted into these like cyborg bodies so they can like deal with the toxic whatever near the amylid eggs. But the point is, the thing is they also have been like programmed to be like relentlessly nurturing and productive. And so you'll be like creeping around that level and you'll hear these like clanging, grinding machinery noises. And then these like twisted and broken like voices whispering like sweet nothings and endearments (laughs) to their little eggs like babies need sleep. And when they see you, like, and they're actually pretty dangerous. And so when they see you, they'll like shriek and come straight at you. And the tempo of the like clanking and jangling increases. And like, they're utterly horrifying. But the thing that's horrifying throughout that game is everyone there has had their humanity like twisted and warped. And they become like a parody of a person. But like the person is not there anymore. And that's actually that's actually pretty effective. Um, I would actually say that Alan Wake does something somewhat like this, where uh, the enemies are all like caricature stereotype uh, people. So like yeah. you know they're the, the you know they're the taken, but all their like all the things that make someone a complete person have been stripped away, and they're just like one note characters. Yeah. I, uh, it, it's on. It's in the opposite direction, I suppose, uh, but, it, but somewhat related to this. I, I, when I'm trying to think back at some of the most effective horror that I've ever played or ever watched, and one of the only sort of like truly effective pieces of horror that did sort of explain everything is Soma, um, because you know by the end of the game you actually do know what's going on, and it is horrifying. It's sort of existentially horrifying. Uh, it's playing up on on terror for the sort of first half. And then you kind of realize kind of what's really going on and the way that life is clinging, just holding on for, for, for dear life basically and, and warping and mutating and becoming all these other things just, just because it wants to stay alive and how, how horrifying that is that you can't even recognize things as human anymore, but they kind of once were. They kind of still think they are. God, they think they are. That's right. And it's, it's really scary. It's really freaky. Um, and so I guess maybe if there's any takeaway from that, it's that if you're going to explain things, if you're going to show things, make it actually <laughs> like really, really out there and really, really terrifying on this existential level of like, what does that mean for you? Like, hey, things are really fucked up. What next? You know, what's what's next? Instead of being like, here we go, here's a reveal. Be like, all right, here's a reveal, but whatever, what's next? What does that actually mean? What does that mean for you? What does that mean for your existence? What does that mean for your species existence? What does that mean for for what life needs to be uh, in, in these circumstances? Like that is a very effective way of uh, of doing things. So much, so good. (laughs) Yeah, I need to play that. I don't think that's the opposite direction because I think. Yeah, yeah. It's in a much smarter and more thought out way. Yeah. It's taking what is the horror, the source of horror, and like the system shock, and like basically what makes us us. 
right? Like how like how much of us can be stripped away and like we still remain human, right? Like what does what does life mean when like consciousness exists, but it's been like totally divorced from every other thing that we define ourselves by. That it was like hijacked consciousness. That's cool. That that's really cool stuff. Um, and it's I mean it, it, it's considerably like farther along in its thinking than System Shock. Like you know, oh let's, these these are fucked up like meat puppets. Ooh, <laughs> which is yeah, it's scary. It's effective, but uh, yeah, Soma seems a lot more like unsettling maybe more than horror yeah like for it, sure it, it's more scary in its implications than in, in its execution of what you're actually playing like yeah there's some creepy moments in that game but it, it's much scarier for what it's like hey what if what if this were real that's actually so fucked up <laughs> as opposed to oh moment to moment i'm shitting my pants but really okay it was a haunted house or something you know the, the sort of typical right. thing that you actually as a player kind of know how to deal with or as a horror fan kind of know how to deal with so <sighs> yeah now now i just want to go back and play soma again or no, maybe i don't even need to play it again it. actually like it it stuck itself so well in my brain that maybe i maybe i'm good it's never gonna leave so <laughs> it's one of those few examples of something that's like yeah, it's there forever. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> you can just recall the experience. Of Pretty much. It. Yeah. Yeah, and and it's really good and really great. Um, yeah, I think it's probably time for us to move on to our mailbag, or we could talk about horror all day. I mean, we could talk about you know sort of effective yeah. techniques in horror and madness mechanics all day, but unless well, unless you have some more parting thoughts there, Rob. Uh, no, just that uh, you can try the demo of Distrust on okay. Steam. Uh, so. They, they they have like a short, actually a pretty meaty demo, uh, oh, nice. but it's still it's still like it, it still kind of seems like it might be in development to some extent. There's like a survey, like what do you think helps make the game better and that. But also at the same time, they're saying it's going to be out in August, so I don't know how much they can actually tweak this. Yeah. Um, but it, it's definitely a nifty thing. I think it just errs too much on the side of like traditional survival sure. and eventually that kind of causes it to lose track of the horror part of the gotcha. equation. Yeah. That makes sense. I'm, I'll probably try it out because I, you know, I am, I'm interested enough definitely to, uh, to give it a shot. Uh, shoot me in my distrust. Um, okay. So our first letter comes from Joe, uh, from New Jersey, not far away, not too far away. Anyway, depending where in Jersey, do we put too much emphasis on stories in games? It seems like there's a never-ending crop of games that are strong on gameplay but have weak or laughable stories. Especially games like Dawn of War 3 and other multiplayer-focused titles, it's a near guarantee that the single-player narrative will be lacking. I feel like developers feel this need to deliver a cinema-like experience to their fan base when perhaps this is not something games are naturally good at. Battlegrounds, a game I hear is quite good, has no narrative, no backstory. When asked on another podcast if the game would benefit from a backstory, the host answered uh, the host answered with a resounding no. Are we forcing games to be something they're not by awkwardly manipulating storylines into them? Games are dynamic, but movie-style narratives are static. Are games held back by this? Is there such thing as a truly dynamic storyline? Do you think we'll ever live in a world where the narrative, narrative experience delivered by a game when no ways resemble a movie-style plot. Uh, thanks for the awesome pods. Love you both. Joe from New Jersey. Well, Joe. Well, I think Ian. there's several answers here. <laughs> there's a dynamic storyline of answers here. 
Um, sorry, it sounded like you wanted to say something. No, 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 no. Okay. Uh, yes, games can have truly dynamic storylines. If that's what if you mean if what you mean by dynamic is that it could lead not only many ways in many paths, but actually be a very different type of thing that the player can get a very very different type of thing out of it. There are a few examples, and I don't want to go too deep into them, but there are a few examples of games that are actually very uh, malleable with their narrative. They're very sort of interactive and weird and dynamic. I mean, her story, gold standard, I suppose, at this point, but a lot of other sort of bizarre, experimental, weird kinds of games that sort of hint at story or they they give you story details, and it's, it's very much a question of... of your perspective or your own sort of ability to parse out what you want from it. Uh, I enjoy things like that, certainly. Um, But if you're talking about just the sort of big cinematic experience, yeah, I think Naughty Dog does this type of thing well, and, and most people are just sort of aping that style. And that it certainly depends on what type of players you're reaching out to and what type of experience you want to make for players. I... I love a good story in my games. Like, I I love characters that I enjoy spending a lot of time with. I'm maybe not looking for the same thing out of a game as I am from a movie. Um, you know, the, my beloved Mass Effect games, the earlier Mass Effect games, were all about, like, hanging out with those people and having fun with them and having fun adventures with them, not doing A to B to C kind of stuff uh, that, you know, an action movie plot is more about. So... It entirely depends on your players and your sort of player experience goals and what you actually want to make and what you're actually interested in doing. Uh, and you certainly don't need to put a explicit uh, linear narrative in every game because games are a very insanely wide uh, spread of types of entertainment and experiences. So, so no, I mean, don't shoehorn it in if it don't fit. <laughs> yeah, but I think there's a reason that a lot of people shoehorn it in, like... So, yeah, a lot of when when emergent narratives were all the rage, yeah, a lot of that was about the fact that people came away from games with stories about their own experience with those games, and that is a very very cool thing. Uh, but in practice, what it meant was like a lot of wacky hijinks. Okay. Uh, you know, that's that's mostly that's most of what emergence generated was, you know, cool anecdotes about stuff that can happen in the game world. But a lot of games actually can't even generate that, right? Like, there's no... Uh, well, Mario's a bad example because Mario's actually... Mario games effectively had no story either. Uh, but... Not there's until a, Odyssey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that's going some places. Oh! <laughs> uh, so, like, there's actually not much in terms of story that a lot of games are going to generate in and of themselves. Like, you know, a lot of tactics games, there's nothing to say about a battle in XCOM for the most part. Like, oh, maybe you'll have a cool moment where like, oh my, you know, this guy had a 10% chance to make this headshot and he landed and saved, you know, saved my uh, assault trooper. It was great. That's fine. But like, that's, that's a story that a million people are going to have. It's not going to be that, it's not really going to be a story. It's going to be an event. And that's what a lot of games can only really generate are these like one-off events, but they don't really lend themselves to any sort of, uh, you know, uh, narrativization. Yeah. And 
so the reason you want something like that in the dawn of war is because unless people are just going to play on skirmishes and play online, the actions that are going to happen in a typical like game of dawn of war are going to be kind of narratively meaningless. But people want stories. People want some kind of broader context for their actions, and so that you know they're going to look to those games to, to uh, present them with one. And I don't think a lot, I think a lot of games just don't lend themselves to the kind of emergence that can supplant uh, that kind of linear storytelling. And I also don't think for the most part uh, we see too many promising directions uh, for extensive dynamic storytelling. Like the most we're getting is like lots of forking paths and forking narratives. But mm, beyond that, I just don't, I'm very skeptical. I, I get very skeptical uh, of sort of a post, uh, like of what a form of storytelling that's native to games somehow really looks like, uh, because most of the things I see offered up, on, like in that direction, don't really impress me that much. Yeah, I mean, I think that's more than fair. I, I, I do think there's room for that. I think people will figure a lot of those things out eventually. I think the work that somebody like Robert Yang does with his like extremely gay experience simulators, <laughs> things like that. I, I see the potential for like genuinely interesting, weird, completely out of the norm kinds of stories to happen from those kinds of situations. Or if, if that sort of approach could be put into more of a simulation or more of a dynamic simulation, then there, there very well could be something coming out of it like that. I I don't think we're going to see much of it, and I don't think we're going to see much of it on a level with a big budget, but I rem I will remain hopeful. I will remain hopeful that, gen that really creative people will get their hands in things and make things work in ways that we've never seen before. All right. Our next email uh, comes from Jeff K. from Ottawa. Jeff writes, one of my most persistent gaming memories is of playing Doom 3 back when it came out in 2004. I was 14, starting grade 9 in Catholic high school, and nursing a healthy cocktail of teenage angst and Catholic guilt slash fear. <laughs> it was the perfect time in my life for a game filled with blood, guns, upside-down crosses, and pentagrams to come out. I had played the original Doom when I was too young to know what any of that imagery meant, but by 2004 I had a very powerful, sinister meeting. Playing it felt terrifying and shameful. I was old enough to recognize the symbols and images the game used, but not old enough to recognize that it was all done with an extremely silly, heavy metal album cover kind of canopy horror. Of course, I can say that now at 27, but Doom 3 remains one of my favorite games, almost entirely because of that very personal, and at the time very scary, impact it had. Are there games either of you have played, probably when you were younger, I would assume, that made you feel guilt or shame or otherwise that you shouldn't be playing them? If so, how do you feel about them now? Do you remember them fondly, or are you just happy they're in the past? Huh. Wow, I really like this letter. Uh, <laughs> um, because I, I really, really, really appreciate that mindset. And I'm having a hard time finding a specific game that I have that with. But I, I too, was an extremely... I, I went to Catholic school my entire life uh, before my freshman year of college, so I I get that cocktail of angst, fear, guilt. Uh, I'm definitely going to hell, even though I try to be a good person, <laughs> kind of stuff. 
going on and the way that you view entertainment when you when you have that mindset when you grow up sort of steeped in that mindset of of like there there's a right way to live and a wrong way to live and that 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 right way to live is an incredibly narrow path and there's a lot of things on alongside that path that will snatch you up and take you away i i really appreciate that mindset because i <laughs> super <laughs> super had it for a very long time um god i there've got to be games there've got to be games that have done this for me and that I have kind of one for me that, play. one for me that definitely did was um gabriel knight 2 the beast within oh uh because like that had adult themes oh uh and in retrospect it's all very silly um yeah. there's like <laughs> You know, like one really profoundly silly sex scene uh, that that nothing even happens. It's just like your character sort of is let off uh, by these two like possibly vampire ladies. I don't know. It's that that part is tough to suss out. But uh, it doesn't help that like my parents saw some of this game and they're like, "What the fuck is this?" Oh man! Uh, like this looks, you know, because also FMV games of that era all looked like softcore porn anyway. Uh, and so like they'd be looking in on this stuff like what the hell's going what what kind of game are you playing and I'm like look this is not what it looks like ignore the cheesy music and uh, the sort of soft lens on this dude getting in the bed with these ladies like this is a this is a serious adult scary werewolf story Uh, and it's for grown ups and mature children as I am uh, so that was that was definitely uh, one of them. The the other thing is that there was look I, I call it subtext, but only in the only in uh, the loosest sense. Like it's basically text. There is there's a lot of gay subtext in that game, and the problem was at the time I wasn't super clued into that, and so like. I like I knew like I knew it was weird, right? Like this thing, this thing was not entirely straight, but I didn't really have the sense of like there being a straight versus like queer anything. Like just you know, I kind of live in this like straight cishet world. Yeah. And so there's this point, like, okay, so the one sex scene, you're sort of led into it by this character who's like really into Gabriel Knight. And Gabriel Knight's really into him. Like, yeah. they're, like, super buds. They just met, and he's, like, helping him close in on who you think the vampire is and all this shit. Uh, sorry, who the werewolf is and all this. And so you're, you're closing in on that, and the, the villain, not really the villain, but the antagonist is kind of like, no, you must come with me at my club. Please, partake of these beautiful ladies. By all <laughs> means, I insist. Do it in my bed. It'll oh, be great. Wow. wow. And I was like, huh. Well, that's nice of him, I guess. But it <laughs> kind of seems like he wanted to be part of it. That's weird. Hmm. And then at the end of the game, uh, your sidekick, who, and I learned this later. Uh, so Gabriel Knight's uh, assistant, Grace, uh, the actress who played her, they only shared one scene. Like, they only had one day of shooting. Uh, so, like, it's this interesting game where, like, they have this really close personal relationship that they talk about, but in terms of the game, they're entirely separate, different, different tracks. Uh, but they have this one scene together where 
it's all gone wrong. Gabriel's had to like basically kill his kill his buddy. Oh. And they're standing on this uh, bridge, and she asks him like what he what he's gone through and what he's feeling. And there's clearly like a lot of like uh like romantic interest on Grace's side, which by the way, like seeing those two characters, like Grace, you can do better, honey. Like way, way better. <laughs> like he is not worth it. Like he's a shitty person. But Grace is like Grace asks him what he feels about this and he's like, Did you ever meet someone that just made you wanna just forget all your cares and like live for the moment? Wow. And just like seize the opportunity. And Grace looks at him with like this really intense like romantic age. Like, yes, I did. And seamlessly he's like, that was uh Baron Van Glauer or whatever, the dude he, he had to kill. And she's like, what the fuck? And he's like, and I was like, oh wow, that's uh huh. Kind of seems like he's kind of hung up on this dude. Wonder what that's about. So yeah, it was it was just kind of this funny. Like the game is gay as hell, um, <laughs> and like this stuff is not subtle. Okay, this is like this is like Finn and Poe levels of like like <laughs> even less subtle than that level yeah. of like, cues and like clues. And yet at the time. The sum effect of it was there was something just off about the entire thing because I was a kid and I was like, didn't really know what was going on here. Yeah. Oh, that's weird. Huh. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> Goofy. I, I'm, I'm realizing now that uh, this game I reviewed like four years ago, that was basically a wannabe Gabriel Knight 2 where there were two male leads and it was a little bit of a do they, don't they, you know, they're kind of in love, but maybe not Uh, classic adventure game style, but it was, it was a terrible, terrible game. Uh, I'm pretty sure Jane Jensen actually wrote it too. There was a whole kerfluffle about it, but it seems like it was stealing that beat for beat without being good. Uh, And that's a little sad. I'll think of the name of this game at some point. It's probably still in my steam library, but you did make me think of uh, the time, once upon a time, there was at Universal Studios Orlando, there was a Xena and Hercules show. And uh, when I was like 11 and uh, maybe 12, way, 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 way pre having any idea of what a giant queer I would be later in life, um, you know, I was a total homophobe because of course I was. I went to Catholic school. And there was a scene in like this this show it's like it's one of those like crappy like oh it's semi filmed and semi like oh live audience participation at at a theme park basically and uh in the pre-show there's like xena and gabrielle taking a bath together my mom sort of went over to me and was like are they a little lezzy and i was like oh no god they're just friends can't women take a bath together (laughs) and it was (laughs) (laughs) man Looking back on that now. Uh, anyway. Um. Was Xena super gay? Yes! Oh my god. No, I'm just saying it was... Because like, what I remember from, like, show trailers was, like, there were, like, straight romantic interests, right? All the time, yes. But there was also... This was, but, like, right. Yes. Okay. It was... I went back and watched it again in, like, college. Uh... When, of course, I knew I was a giant queer at that point and had a lot of fun with a sort of actually a college boyfriend uh, of mine. We went back and watched the show and it was fun. Um, and uh, 
God, that show, because it came out in the 90s and like, I think it went from like 95 to 2001, which is funny enough, the same runtime as like Star Trek Voyager, I believe. Um, it was in that like, it's the 90s and we can uh, kind of be queer, but not really. Things still have to be kind of coded, especially in like a genre show. Like Will and Grace and Ellen were starting to sort of break the boundaries in the very, very, you know. Wait, 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 hold on. Yes. I just remembered something from the 90s. Yeah, did you? <laughs> Will and Grace didn't start out as a gay sitcom, did it? I don't think it did, no. It started out as like a Seinfeld setup where like he's just the like people used to date and their wacky buddies. Yeah, I think the right? gay stuff was like not hidden at first, but like it wasn't uh it wasn't like, hey, watch the gay sitcom about the gays. Yeah. I yeah. think. And Ellen definitely wasn't. Ellen wasn't out until like the fifth season or fourth season of that show. She wasn't out at all. Like she was, she dated dudes exclusively, which is not to say obviously queer women can't date dudes. Give me by, whatever. But like, yeah, Ellen was, Ellen's the one I'm more familiar with for sure. But like, it became a gay show for mainstream audiences, not for gay audiences, but for mainstream audiences. It's very, it's a weird and very specific thing, but like those were two shows that were so groundbreaking because they were basically educating the normies that gay people don't have horns, like, <laughs> and worship Satan and <laughs> whatever else, like that people probably thought at the time because it was so completely not a mainstream thing whatsoever. Um, so yeah. Uh, Oof. A lot, a lot of gay stuff. A lot, a lot of gay stuff in the 90s. But yeah, anyway, Xena is like the most we have our cake and we're eating it too kind of thing. Like they, every single thing was explained as like a, it's wicked gay, but there's like that little like right turn they could have taken that were like, no, they're just good friends. <laughs> the last episode of the show ends with a kiss between the two leads. But even that one is explained away as Xena died and Gabrielle didn't have a cup, and she had to go to the well of life Sorry, or some what? bullshit. It's all, like, weird, ridiculous Greek mythology shit. Just, this sounds yeah. like the opposite of sexy, just to be clear. Oh, my like, God. It, if, it, it's, if it's, like, a kiss, there's also, like, some sort of, like, baby bird scenario. It basically I'm not, was. I'm not into that at all. <laughs> like, it basically was. It's like she needs to give her the water of life so their lips can touch, but it's definitely a kiss. And there's also a seat, like... By the last season, they knew. They absolutely knew that, like, half of the people watching that show were for how fucking gay it was. And they had, like, they had things like there would be drag queens and there would be, like, queer people on the show being kind of queer. But Xena couldn't be, like, 100% queer red, even though she totally fucking was. And, like, she and Gabrielle, like, there's, there's a scene where Gabrielle is, like, near death and she's like, huh. Oh, please bury me wherever. And Xena's like, you can bury, I'll bury you in my family's plot. Like, it's a very like, oh, the lesbians are planning their, their will kind of thing. It's just very, oh God, wow. that so gay. It's so gay without being like, without ever crossing into 100% territory, which is hilarious. Anyway, let's read the next letter. Ah, oh, this one is from Craig from Baltimore. And Craig writes, hey, Danielle and Rob. Just found your pod and have been really enjoying your discussions. My question comes via your coverage of Prey and your glowing impressions of it. Can't wait to play it. Danielle said something that got me thinking. She mentioned the aliens in the game and said, I'm paraphrasing, uh, she didn't feel bad shooting oil monster aliens. Maybe being in the middle of near automata gave me a pause from this comment with humanity being given uh, to even the rustiest buckets of bolts 
Heck, they call uh, they call them machine life forms. So many games, especially the sci-fi variety, impose some amount of inhumanity to otherwise sentient life forms and asks you to shoot them. I guess my short question is, is there ever justification for ignoring the supposed inhumanity of your enemies? Is there ever a point where you shoot at sentient life forms that doesn't somewhat uh, mimic the, kinds, the same kinds of thought processes that humanity have used to justify dehumanizing people who are othered based on their race, culture, religion, etc.? It seems like shooting in science fiction and fantasy video game settings offers enemies not human enough to be treated with the same regard as humans, and that bad guys, no matter how much or little they look human, are just an unintentional allegory of the same xenophobia we've faced every time in human history that people have pointed weapons at each other. Sorry for the text wall, just curious about your thoughts on this. I think Craig from Baltimore is correct here. I think it is very much like a stand-in for, oh, this is an okay thing to shoot. Right, this is, this is okay, don't feel bad for, you know, don't feel bad about it, player. You can feel good about shooting our aliens because they don't really look like people. Uh, but really, if they have, you know, if, if the people or, or creatures or whatever in any supposed fiction have thought processes and feelings and emotions, it's probably not a nice thing to shoot them. I guess uh, in this context, uh, I'm guilty of going through that thought process, but it is also... And I think this is the usual sort of easy answer that a developer might might give you, but uh, you're in a weird survival situation. It's extreme, so you get to shoot them because they'll kill you first, so you get to be very aggro. Also, we give you stealth mechanics, so you don't have to shoot people, but it's really fun if you do. That was, that was me being, uh, yeah. you know, reductive <laughs> right there. But, but I don't think Craig is wrong. I don't think Craig is wrong at all. I think that we do a lot of rationalizing as human beings to sort of say, hey, violence is totally fine and fun in this context. And we've made it fine and fun uh, because it's a fun game. Um, and that's a really important point to keep in mind, I think, if we're being honest with ourselves uh, and our experiences. Yeah, I think it's, it, it is a good point. Like, I can't really argue against it. Right. Um, <laughs> I think it's interesting that, like, so a persistent problem for, like, real-world militaries has been, like, how do you make people actually shoot at each other? Right. Because like, most people don't want to, right? Like, um, S.L.A. Marshall wrote this study. Uh, he conducts a lot of studies uh, about, like, the experience of, uh, like, soldiers in combat in World War II. Uh, and I think the... The, the major work was a book, a book called Men Against Fire, but I think that's where he writes that what he and his research has realized is that, like, even in World War II, right, so conventional conflict, like, you know, you know, conventional armies going up against each other, sent, like, con conscript armies, but still, like, pretty well-trained. Even there, uh, it was something like 70% of soldiers did not fire their weapons at the enemy. Wow. Like, people would be in battle, like, shooting, but they would not be shooting to kill. They would not be shooting, like, at other humans. They'd be, like, just there. And so it's a persistent problem where, like, people do not want to shoot at people they see as, like, human. Right. And I think so video games, their solution is, like, fine. We'll give you the aliens. Right. <laughs> and, and I think that's partly driven by the fact that, like, games are good at shooting and so they like you know just like you know they create a lot of scenarios where what's the solution here now uh, you better you better shoot these guys shoot it yeah <laughs> um 
And so I think, I think it's kind of interesting that, like, for games, for it to stay fun, they really have to, like, uh, play, like, I think, like, almost consciously are embracing that mindset of, well, we need to create dehumanized enemies, or literally inhuman enemies, uh, for, for you to shoot at. And that probably does uh, mimic, you know, those, those real-world uh, thought processes. But I don't think that... I think that's a fundamentally... I, I, I don't think there's any... I don't attach much moral weight to that, I guess, is what I'm getting at, because... Okay. The context of video games is often exactly what you said. It's that heightened, silly, like, kill or be killed. Like, Earth is being invaded. Holy shit, there's demons coming through that portal. Right. Like, and that's a very different thing than sort of the mindset that powered, like, colonialism of, well, look at these, you know, you know look, look, look at these savages coming out of the bush. You gotta, you gotta shoot them. That's that's a very different thing. For video games, it's it's very much just like the dumbest possible settings in most cases. Yeah. In most cases, not all. It it, it does tie back to me some of the, some of the stuff that we we talked about a little bit when Westworld was sort of in its in its prime. You know, when when that was uh, airing, the first season of Westworld was airing, and it's the whole the kind of ethics of pleasure, whether or not. Not in, in our reality that obviously nothing is nearly as advanced as artificial intelligence for, for real in our world, in, in games. Like nothing actually, uh, video game enemies don't feel pain and have thoughts uh, for themselves, yeah. right? The way that those androids did. But, but there is something to the, what does it say about you if you really enjoy raping and killing um, <laughs> if fake people, right? What, does it yeah. actually... Does that say something about you? If you're if you're really enjoying this, does it say that you are able to distinguish uh, between reality and fantasy in a particularly good way? That you are having an outlet for your fucked up fantasies, or does it say something shitty about you if you have fucked up fantasies like this uh, to begin with? Like it's a it's not a there's no answer to that question necessarily. There's no it, but it is worth examining. I think, or or you know, I'm not saying that this is something you should take a, a few years out of your life and go and uh, <laughs> you know. Think about what what you want to do to 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 fake people that don't have uh, feelings or or emotions or anything like that. But it's it's worth examining and it's worth thinking about in in terms of of, of the culture we live in or the culture yeah. that you yourself are situated in, right? What what are the what are the hidden curricula as uh, Troy Troy would <laughs> yes. put it of these yes, games? Exactly. Like what are they saying? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. That's a really good place, I think, for us to talk about our weekend project. So, Rob, I'll let you go first. You, you reading or watching? Or oh, I am watching. Special? I am Ooh. watching the 24 Hours of Le Mans. Oh, baby. Um, All right. Tell me tell me about what that actually is. 24-hour endurance race. Oh, shit. Uh, in, at the Circuit uh, de la Sarf at, uh, in France. And it is, there are four classes of cars that race at Le Mans, and they all race on the track simultaneously. It's something like 60-some cars uh, out on this, like, eight-mile racetrack. Um, laps are, like, ridiculously long. It's a huge racetrack. And they run for 24 straight hours, uh, shift changes, all this stuff. Um, and... One, it's just a hell of a spectacle. There's literally nothing else like it. I think there's only a handful of 24-hour races uh, in the world. This, you know, uh, this is the only one I can actually name off the top of my head. Um, and 
it's incredible to see like the Le Mans prototype class are like the most advanced cars in the world, even more so than F1, because like oh, wow. this is where your major car manufacturers are coming in to like, part of it is just a, you know, a pissing contest. But the other part of it is a lot of like really uh, impressive technologies are first tested at Le Mans, right? Like, and it gives you an opportunity to stress test them. So like, this is a place where Audi conducted a lot of research for years on like, um, you know, hybrid, uh, hybrid engines. Uh, and now I think pretty much everybody is running hybrid engines, hmm. half electric, half gas. Um, so it's, the, these are some of those sophisticated prototypes uh, in the world. They're really cool right now. The, the big duels between like uh, Porsche and Toyota, um, the other part of it I really like, though, is that it takes a huge casting team to cover this thing. Like, uh, basically, Fox takes all their motorsports people who aren't busy with NASCAR and like <laughs> throws them at this. And because it's twenty four hours, there's just too much airtime to fill for these people to like remain their normal, like boring caster selves. And so, over the course of the race, they just start getting more and more unfiltered. <laughs> And it's actually really entertaining because it's actually, it's a little bit like those E3 podcasts that we were recording oh, yeah. at, at Waypoint this entire week where it's like, oh, this is getting really off the cuff and like way <laughs> less structured because there's just way too much happening here for us to really even like stay on top of. Uh, so, you know, for instance, earlier today, there was like a really uh, avoidable accident that was caused by like uh, a driver really screwing up. Oh, no. And normally people are a little bit, little bit diplomatic about this, but it happened during commercial break. And I'm watching the raw feed uh, on, on Fox Sports Go. Uh, so I'm like watching it online. So they don't cut away. Like the broadcast feed cuts away, but they don't cut away on this feed. So you just hear them talking among themselves. And like one of the, you hear one of them be like, oh God, I feel sick watching that. And then you hear someone else just snarl over an open mic like, God, what an idiot. Get that guy off, off that track. Um, it, it was it was great. You just you just hear them like going in on this guy, uh, and then the segment comes back and they're a little more diplomatic. But like during that during that opening, they're just like this guy sucked. What an asshole! <laughs> you found out what they really thought. Yeah. Yeah. So it's 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 an amazing spectacle. There's really like there's nothing else like it. It's the only weekend of the year in racing that's like this. Like I woke up at six thirty this morning, threw this on. Uh, I've had it running in the background ever since. It's just reassuring and relaxing and, uh, you know, and as they're racing at night right now, uh, really gorgeous. Oh, my God. I, you're going to turn me into a car person eventually. Working on it. Yeah, I, I think it's going to work because I, I don't care much for the cars themselves, but I sure like the human drama of racing <laughs> quite a bit, quite a bit. All right. Well, speaking of human drama, I am almost done uh, with this season of Orange is the New Black, uh, a beloved show of mine. I'm sure we've talked about it uh, in, the, in the past on this uh, on this very podcast. Uh, this season, a lot of people have fallen off this show. I think a lot of people were super positive on it at first and then kind of felt like, oh, you know, it's gone in all these weird ways. It has these insane tone changes, sometimes inside of like a 
three minute scene where it'll be absolutely hilarious and then it'll be like the most tragic thing you've ever seen in your life and then there's another joke about it or you know the kinds of stuff they do racially uh and in, and with <laughs> the kinds of things they do with radical empathy on this show are very off-putting to a lot of people i think um including the fact that it's empathetic towards people who have done really horrific shit uh and it continues to do that uh i i personally am not put off by that at all i really like this show for many reasons but uh, I, I will go into more specifics with this season without spoiling anything I'll just say this season is entirely, uh, so far, I'm on episode 11 of 13, I think, uh, but it's taking place, this entire season is taking place over the course of like three days of a prison riot uh, because a really beloved character was killed at the very end of last season and a riot broke out. And so this is Litchfield Prison as a complete riot scene where some of the factions of ladies on this show are trying to sort of protest uh, genuine, like very, 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 you know, ACLU approved kind of stuff. Like this, this is not how we should be treated. They're, they're making demands. They're talking with prison uh, negotiators saying until our demands are met, until we have better health care, until we have, you know, real food, until yeah. we have better conditions, we're not going to stop this riot. And then meanwhile, the, there's two meth heads who are running around with a, uh, like somebody's detached finger trying to uh, get people to attach it and like in, just wacky shit is happening as well as these very, very serious, genuine, real world kinds of things are happening. I love the tone changes on this show. I love that it's really uproariously funny and then it's really uncomfortable and then yeah, it's really- That sounds really intense. Tear jerking. It is, especially this season. Um, I think it was this intense at times during season two or whatever season it was that Mrs. V, ah, God, I forget if it's season two or three, but that one was super intense because it was basically the only evil character that's ever been on this show. The only time this show has not been about radical empathy, uh, you know, humanizing even the worst, shittiest people. Uh, the only time they ever didn't do that was with this woman V, who was this sort of drug dealer mastermind who, who kind of got all of the, uh like all of the black women to be under her thumb in certain ways and did all this really, really fucked up stuff. And that was fucking intense too. Um, this is, I think, a return to that intensity, but with an even better focus by sort of throwing the sort of prison industrial complex under the bus even harder than it's done in the past, which has always been kind of the thing that I've appreciated the most about the show and its potential legacy. I think that a lot of, you know, people who don't have any dealings with people in prison, any dealings with the incarcerated public, uh, population, rather, have any thoughts about people in prison ever. Mm. <laughs> and that this show really does say, like, hey, look at this shit stain on America <laughs> that is our prison system and our broken, fucked up, racist criminal justice system. Take, take a look at it, and you're even allowed to laugh at it, but it's real fucked up, and we're not going to let you forget that. And that's kind of the message that the show has always had, I think. Um, and but yeah, going I feel in, like I've heard people like kind of turning against the show. Very much so, yeah. And I think it's because of the hard, 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 hard tonal shifts because mm. it really will introduce a white guard killing a, a black woman, a tiny black woman, and being very much about that pain and that loss and about police brutality and about the things that are very, very fucked up uh, in our country. And then we'll also turn around and make a bunch of fucking jokes, right? It it does that. It it sure fucking does that. 
And I'm not saying it makes jokes at that character's expense or anything, but it, it will do like, hey, also, isn't this funny? Aren't these idiot meth heads funny? Like it's, it does that, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah, wow. Uh, so I understand. Uh, so you think there's people like getting turned off because like they were just on board for season one, like fish out of water, like prison. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe they were. I, I also think, like, there are legit criticisms of it. Like, there's a lot of people who are like, oh, great, so here's some fucking white feminism. I, I don't think they're wrong. Like, there, there are scenes that don't land. You know, I think there are things that don't land all that well sometimes in this show. But overall, I really like it and appreciate its message, for whatever that's worth, you know. Um, I think it's one of the only things that's, like, a popular TV show that has this much of a fucking message and this much of a clear idea of what it actually wants to say and i think there's a lot of value in that to be honest mm -hmm. uh, so if some of it doesn't land i am willing to forgive it for that there's also uh skinheads in this show that like <sighs> say a lot of really fucked up shit and right. i also don't blame anybody for being super put off by that you know that is not my place to tell someone to not be put off by that for sure uh but I personally appreciate that the show will go absolutely anywhere and is not afraid to go absolutely anywhere, even if it does missteps sometimes. So, yeah, I mean, again, I have a couple more episodes to go. So, you know, it could completely shit itself. At could the all end. go wrong. It's possible. Yeah. <laughs> it's possible. But uh, I am I'm really loving it uh, thus far. And I'm always very excited for another season of that show. Uh, and goddamn, <laughs> it just takes me places every time. <laughs> For sure. All right. So, my note, it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by yours truly and hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about Idle Weekend at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. Keep up the latest from us. Follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. And you can tell your friends, tell your family, tell your, you know, maybe some folks if you happen to know. Uh, you got some friends in prison, you got some friends in high places, you got some friends in low places, you got friends wherever you have friends. If you think they might appreciate this show, please do tell them about us. Uh, it helps us out so, so much. Word of mouth is kind of how we get out there. And if you could also take a second to go ahead, rate us on iTunes, that also helps us out. And we really do appreciate it. So for Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo. Wishing you the finest of idle weekends.